The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 140 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week. We really appreciate it. We've got a great show for you this week. Uh, But before we jump into that, we want to thank one of our reviewers on Apple Podcasts. The username is Abby Green. Thank you so much for your five-star review and your wonderful words. We really appreciate it. Uh, This week in the conversation, my guest, Drew Young, I think this is a really important conversation and an important message that uh, he and his book have. We talk all about uh, mental health issues, as well as him coming home earlier than he had expected from his mission. And he's just got such a great message of hope. And again, I think it's an important message for all of us to hear. You are going to love this. Drew is just fantastic. And coming up uh, this week in my Latter-day Life, the funny thing about faith in change. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today, right here in the Latter-day Live studios, and yes, we are recording live for the first time since COVID. We are sitting six feet apart from each other, but it is my honor to have a new author of an incredible book that we'll talk all about, Drew Young. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Sean. It's great to be here. Oh, thank you so much for coming. You reached out to me, and I was so excited uh, to hear your story, and I can't wait to dive into the book. But first of all, we got to get to know you. So tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you grew up. Yeah, so I, I was born in Utah, and at the age of three, my, my dad got a new job and moved us out to New Canaan, Connecticut. Uh, he worked in New York City, so we, uh, we moved out there, and it was, it was my happy childhood years. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot different out there. The, the trees are just green and always in bloom, and it's humid. Uh, and we moved back to Utah when I was 12 years old, mm. and uh, that was more difficult for me. Yeah, how, how far is New Canaan from the city? 45 minutes. Yeah, so did you spend a lot of time going into New yeah. York? Yeah, so we, uh, oh man, it was great. We would go see, you know, Broadway shows. We'd go to Central Park. We would, you know, go to the Macy's Day Parade, kind of everything you envision with New York, Times Square and things like that. I had the opportunity to do, which I'm, you know, so grateful for. But then you go to Connecticut, and I, I've spent a ton of time in New York and a fair amount of time in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. You go to Connecticut, you go to a different world. Like Connecticut, could not be more different than New York City. <laughs> That's true. So what was life like growing up there? So let's say before you moved back to Utah, yeah. what was your, what were you into? What was your family like? So I'm the youngest of eight. So I have seven older siblings. And by the time I was born, my oldest sister was 18. And so moving to Connecticut, I think there were only four of us that moved there with my parents just because, you know, people were either serving missions or, you know, they were married or in college. And so it was me and my uh, three older brothers, mostly, that were in the house. And That's a big spread. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Everyone's best friends, surprisingly enough, and, and me and my oldest sister, you know, get along just great. But it, you're right, it is a big spread. But yeah, growing up in Connecticut, huge fan of, you know, being outside, you know, the woods was our backyard. 
love to play basketball, love yeah. to to read and to write, and just kind of just be a kid. And you were out. raised in the church? I was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then you moved back to Utah. Where uh, Whereabouts in Utah? So Salt Lake City area. Yeah. Um, my dad got transferred his job, transferred him back to Utah, you know, nine years later. And that's a massive change. I mean, <laughs> Connecticut to Utah. Yes. What were, did you have, do you remember having like preconceived notions about what it was going to be like living in Utah? Well, I mean, my family was out here. So I yeah. mean, my grandparents were here, my cousins were here. Mm. And so we'd see them once a year for, you know, or once every couple of years for family reunions. And so it was always something that I look forward to coming back to Utah. Right. Uh, just because, you know, it was either like a fun road trip or we got to fly, you know, just something to get out of Connecticut. Cause I mean, that's all I knew, but moving back was, was exciting at first. Cause you know, you, you're, you have a new adventure, you go into a new school, make new friends. Um, but it turned out to be a little more difficult than I had anticipated. What type of difficulties did you run into? So growing up, I experienced a lot of separation anxiety, uh, which is basically for me, it was, I couldn't be away from my mom. For long periods of yeah. time, for whatever reason, um, it would come in bouts. So you'd it'd be here for six months and it'd go away for two years and it'd come back for three months and it'd go away for four years. You mean like, so was this like in the short term, like even just being at school for the day? Yeah. It was hard to be away from your mom? Yeah. And when it, when it was at its worst, um, it was hard to, you know, just to go and hang out with friends for the night. Um, really? Just wow. having that security blanket of a, of a relationship with my mom was at times difficult for me to, you know, get away from. And so that's what kind of led to the difficulties moving to Utah. And mental health is a big part of your story. We'll get more more into that. It's a big part of your book and a big part of your life story. Mm -hmm. At what age were you actually like diagnosed or at least did you, was it recognized that, hey, there are some mental health challenges? It didn't become kind of anxiety, depression type until I was in my, until I was probably 20. Mm. Um, before then it was just kind of a separation anxiety where it wasn't like, you know, panic attacks. It wasn't, you know, bouts of, you know, strong anxiety, things like that. It was just kind of like, oh, I didn't want to, I didn't want to leave the house. I was, I was, yeah. I got homesick really easily. That's a really good way to put when it. When you look back at it, do you think you were downplaying it to yourself or do you think it just wasn't as major and then it grew? I mean, I didn't really know yeah. what it was. I knew that uh, my friends didn't have to deal with it, that they could, you know, go away to scout camp for a week and be fine or, you know, do a sleepover and nothing, you know, they wouldn't worry about anything. Uh, in fact, I once asked my friend, I said, how long do you think you could be away from your parents? And he said, uh, three weeks, probably before I'd start to miss them. And I thought to myself, that is so odd. Like I can barely go, you know, two or three hours without like thinking, oh my gosh, are they safe? You know, what's going on? Mm. And so I knew that I was a little bit different in that aspect Right. Um, but like I said, it, it would come and go in such weird waves that I didn't know kind of when it was going to hit again. It yeah. was odd. Did you confide in your parents with this? Yeah. Yeah. They, they were very aware of it. They had um, kind of differing views of, you know, well, he just needs to go and suck it up. And um, yeah. he needs to, you know, the more he gets out there, the more likely it'll go away. Uh, and then there was another viewpoint of, you know, we need to take care of him. You know, he's fragile. You know, there's things that we don't understand and he probably needs to stay home. And so moving to Utah was when one of those random bouts hit. I didn't have it for probably two or three years. And then we moved to Utah and I woke up one morning at scout camp and it had hit. And the ensuing 
two and a half years were quite traumatic to say the least. Um, the kids would, obviously, you know, you don't have kids that understand exactly what that is. And so when they experience something like that and they have a friend who goes through that, there's a lot of bullying involved. Yeah. I was bullied pretty severely, uh, teased a lot. Were, were, do you think your church leaders or scout leaders were aware of what was going on? I had mentioned it to them quite a few times. Um, but I think their perspective was, oh, it's just kids being kids. Yeah. Everyone was kind of rough uh, in the friend group that I had in, in you know, the, the deacon and teacher's quorums and things like that. But I, I've always been more on the, uh, the sensitive side, I guess you could say. I don't find pleasure in tearing people down. I, yeah. don't, I don't like to make somebody the butt of a joke. But those kids would find a lot of pleasure in you know, ripping my glasses off or shoving me against the fence or you know, throwing me on the ground and kind of just laughing about it. And it crushed me socially, emotionally, mm. and uh, eventually spiritually. I, ha- I hated church because I hated the kids that were at church. It took me probably till I was in 10th grade and had just experienced that for so long to just kind of realize, okay, this is not how I want to live my life anymore. True. This is heartbreaking. I mean, it, it it's breaking my heart hearing you say this and you're very young still i mean i i i hope and i believe and i I've, I've seen the church make great strides in better education to leaders and i think leaders are more sensitive now i being quite old it was it was terrible i mean i saw this all the time right i'd hoped that by now it would change you know yeah um, what what advice do you have for leaders to look out for as you look back on this? I think that it really comes down to, you got to be aware of who you're, who you're leading, um, who's in your class. There's going to be kids at every end of the spectrum. You're going to have kids that are really introverted. You're going to have kids that are really extroverted. You're going to have kids that, I mean, you can just tell when someone's, you know, standing off in the corner, that's got to spark something in your mind that says, you know, I need to watch out for this person, especially if they've just moved in or if they're new to the church, or if you can tell like they've had a you know a rough few days with the kids. I mean, I think it just takes a level of awareness to kind of see, you know, there's something going on here, and I'm not going to let, you know, just boys be boys or girls be girls. I'm going to actually see, you know, maybe I need to talk to them. Is there something that I can do for this person? And it's difficult at that age because you don't want to go to your leader and, and tattletale. You know, you don't want to say, right. oh, they're picking on me because you're, you know, you think you're weak or you think they're going to beat up on you more. Yeah, you think it could get worse yeah. if I go talk yeah. to them. And yeah. that was my mindset. I was like, oh, gosh, you know, you don't go tell on somebody. You kind of suck it up. But looking back, I wish that my leaders had the sensitivity to understand that there's not every child and every kid, you know, 12, 13, 14 years of age wants to, you know, play around a rough house and, you know, do things like that. So I understand, you know, obviously they, they did the best they could and I have no animosity towards them or the kids that, you know, were my age. Uh, but what a difficult time, Drew. I mean, that's just really tough. Did you, did you get professional help at some point in this time? Yeah. So I, I had, I had seen a counselor when I lived in Connecticut for separation anxiety, probably, uh, you know, three or four times. But when I was in Utah, I didn't really see anybody. Mm. Um, and it was unfortunate because I turned to some negative habits yeah. um, to kind of numb the pain. Sure. 
and they they were obviously only temporary fixes. But for me, it was a way to kind of feel a little bit of love, feel yeah. a little bit of uh, fulfillment. That I think is common. Yeah, yeah. lots of people do that, mm-hmm. filling in the gaps with all the wrong things. Yeah, and I I understand mm. now. I mean, I don't hold any judgment towards anyone who's bullied or has mental illness who you know does things that in the moment feel great, but they later regret. I don't hold any judgment because I understand why they do it. And it's because they're empty inside. They're looking for something to fill that, like that gap that you mentioned. And it's a really difficult thing to have the awareness and the maturity to say, you know, I need something else other than this. It takes a little bit to kind of break out of that. Boy, I hope we're getting better. Mm -hmm. Drew, I really do. I just... And we have, I I think we have. I know the church broadly has, like the church as a structure. Mm -hmm. There's so much emphasis on talking about mental health and talking about loving others and unconditional Mm -hmm. and more training for leaders. I got to believe we are. I hope we are. (laughs) Your story breaks my heart. Um, But uh, let's, let's, let's keep going. So you, you go through high school um, and you, you continued with some of these difficult bouts. What what else what else were your interests though in high school? Well, my my junior and senior year of high school were awesome. Mm. I to kind of backtrack, during that time when I was bullied, I actually was homeschooled. I was homeschooled seventh through ninth grade. Okay. It was completely new territory, but it was the kind of the way for me and my parents to handle my anxiety. Right. And I think that only escalated the bullying just because, you know, this kid is doesn't have any friends, so mm. we're not gonna be his friend, you know. But I went back to school in 10th grade and slowly but surely kind of regained my social confidence, uh, played a lot of basketball, made a lot of friends through, you know, sports. And my junior and senior years of high school were, I would say, pretty normal. I uh, made a a strong group of friends that I'm friends with, you know, to this day. And we all kind of helped each other get through, you know, those high school, you know, Mm. drama and, uh, temptations and things like that. Yeah. And my anxiety went away with it. So like I said, it kind of, it came and it went. And uh, those were some really fulfilling years. Did you feel like it was gone, gone? Like, did you believe it was over? Yeah. I feel like I had grown out of it. Mm. And probably because I, I had proved myself on multiple occasions that I could go places and do things and experience different things for, you know, days or weeks at a time where I thought to myself, okay, like I'm a confident young man. Um, let's see what life has to offer. Gotcha. So you get done with high school. What came next? Obviously in the, in the Latter-day Saint culture, you know, at the end of high school, the the question arises of, well, actually, now it's earlier in the senior year of high school that you can start, you know, working on your mission papers. Yeah, it was still nineteen. It had, when... it, it had turned. It had changed to eighteen. Oh, okay. Um, when I was in high school, I graduated in twenty fourteen. So I think the the age change was like twenty twelve or something like that. Okay. And so all my friends, you know, we graduated in June, but you know, March, April, May, everyone's getting their mission calls, and it's so exciting and. You know, you have friends going to Germany and Italy and South America and Asia. And it's just, it kind of just, you know, puts the, not the, not the pressure necessarily, but the excitement on you. You know, you want to, you want right. to get this thing going. And of course I knew of my, my past bouts with anxiety and, you know, two years is a long time to be away from home. And at that time you could only, you know, write one letter to your family a week, not, you know, FaceTime them and things like that. So I, I sat down with my parents and we kind of had a, a just kind of a get it out in the open conversation. 
And I said, well, I really want to go. I feel like I'm ready. And they said, why don't you pray about it, fast about it, see maybe if you should go to a semester at college first. So I did that. And the kind of the idea was, all right, I'll go to a semester at BYU, Idaho, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, which is like three and a half hours away from my house. And so like I was away from home. Yeah. It's a good testing ground. Yeah. Sure. And so that's what I did. My friends all left in the summer and I uh, stayed behind and, you know, that fall I went to school. How was your uh, experience there? Loved it. And none of the separation anxiety? No. I was, at that point in my life, I was confident. I was trying new things and having new experiences. You know, I no one knew me up there, so I could be myself completely. I didn't have to worry about anything. I sang. I awesome. played sports. And so it was a really great time for me. Yeah. You come back. What came next? Yeah. So I... I Turned in my mission papers uh, in August. So right before I went to school, I turned my mission papers in. And I remember coming home one day from work, and my mom was sitting outside on the on the porch. And uh, either it meant I was in trouble or she had something important to tell me. And she kind of sat me down. She said, you know what? The missionary department just called. And she said, they found some red flags, medical red flags in your application, and you're going to have to wait six months to be eligible for missionary service. And it just shook me. Uh, it kind of just broke my heart a little bit. Yeah, you were ready. I mean... Yeah, I was ready. My All my friends, you know, I was thinking, oh my gosh, my friends are going to be home like a year and a half earlier than me. You know, I was, I, I just kind of was, was thinking about all the bad things that could happen from, you know, having to wait. And why did I have to wait? What medical red flags did they see? Because they they weren't really specific. And so that was a difficult challenge for me. Were they specific to your parents? Like, did they tell your parents here the things we're concerned about? So I had mentioned like an overall kind of struggle with anxiety. Um, But I I had stated that it was a lot better than it was. And for whatever reason, I guess they had thought, you know, let's, let's, give this individual some time. And so anyways, I, I remember going upstairs and I threw my car keys on the ground and I just got on my knees and I said, Heavenly Father, what happened? Like, I'm ready. I want to go. I want to serve. Like, isn't this what you want me to do? And I just had a, a feeling of peace come over me. Just like, this is my time, not yours. Like, mm. you want to serve me? Let me do it in my own way and in my own time. And so I got up and I had a, you know, feeling of peace. And that's when I went off to school. And uh, I remember walking out the door for an 8 a.m. class I had in Rexburg, which is like going to class in a snowstorm. Yeah, Rexburg's cold. (laughs) Very cold. Yes. And my phone buzzed and I looked down at it. It was my bishop from back home in Utah. And he said, and this was literally two weeks after this experience had happened. He said, your mission call has been assigned. You'll receive it this week. Do you know what changed? No, to this day. To this day, you still don't know why that changed. No idea. All I know is that they said six months and something happened, divine intervention or whatever you want to call it. But Wild. my mission call was assigned. So you come home to open your mission call and all the excitement of that. And where yeah. was your call? Estonia. So it was the Baltic mission. Estonian speaking, uh, which for me was, where the heck is that? Yeah. Uh, my mom literally collapsed 
to the ground in shock. It was a experience I'll never forget. Just the joy and the excitement and the like, where the heck is this place? I thought it was in the Mediterranean. Um, just sounded tropical, but it's, you know, it's in the heart of Europe. Yeah. Uh, it's next to Ukraine and Russia. So it's, you know, it's, it's right. cold and it's different. And so, but it was exciting. Sure. So you get this excitement, you start preparing. How long was it before you were to report to the MTC? So I received my call September 14th, 2014. And was asked to report to the Provo MTC on January 28th, 2015. So I had, you know, four solid months to kind of, you know, get ready for it. And full disclosure at this point, because I'm going to ask some leading questions. <laughs> Drew was kind enough to send me uh, an advanced copy of the book. Talk about uh, your feelings as you walked into the MTC, because in the book, you go into yeah a good amount of detail on this. Yeah. So in the book, I kind of describe my, my mission experience. And the lessons that I learned from it. And going into the MTC was a, it was a, an emotional override. I think you could say, I know some people love the MTC. Some people struggle with the MTC, but walking into the MTC that first day was just kind of a, a waterfall of emotions. Um, I was sad because I'd left my family. I was going into this completely blind. No one had ever told me what really goes on in the MTC. Just that, you know, you learn this language and then you leave. Or if you don't learn language, you learn the lessons and then you leave. I hadn't really seen like a day by day or week by week process of what mm. goes down there. But you know, less than an hour after you're dropped off, it, it's just uh, yeah, it's quick. Yeah, they don't they don't tell you they don't tell you how it is, but it's it's really quick that you know if if you're foreign speaking or any language really, you get put in the classroom and it's for me it was no English, which I had some strong feelings about. Uh, kind of feeling like, oh my gosh, like you're not going to talk English to us at all. You know, this is brand new. But the, you know, if we, if we were in Estonia, we weren't going to get English. So they spoke to us in Estonian for three hours. Wow. And I think everyone kind of left that, that room and went to dinner and thought to themselves, what did we get ourselves into? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. 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 It's, it's overwhelming. But a big part of your story um, in, in the book and Obviously, a major part of it is that your anxiety returned mm -hmm. in a major, major way. Uh, talk a little bit about that, like how it, tell us how it uh, kind of came back. About week two, uh, I was there for nine weeks. Week two, I started to notice weird symptoms that I never had before. Uh, it was less, I'm homesick, I miss my family, and it was more, my heart's always racing. I'm always stressed. I'm gaining weight. I'm not sleeping. I have. I feel like if I'm not up at 5.30 studying the language, I'm not going to be blessed for the day. It was very exact obedience um, yeah. type pressure that I felt. And it started to really take a toll on me. Uh, like I, like I mentioned, you know, all those different experiences that I was having, you know, with not sleeping and things like that, that I, I went and saw the therapist that they had at the MTC, uh, which was an amazing experience. And she was able to kind of, you know, walk me through a few things, just kind of give me an hour away from my companions to talk things out. Uh, but the anxiety really hit me hard. One of, one of the things that really struck me from your book is, 
that if you were up 10 minutes past bedtime, even if it was sharing testimony or comforting another missionary or something so positive that no one would ever blame you for, that you felt guilt and anxiety over that. Yeah, we we had a, a rule that our branch presidency created um, that was called the 777 rule. Yeah. Which is basically every P day you email a member of your branch presidency to kind of keep them up to date on your progress for the week. And we were required to send them an email with kind of the the numbers of when we woke up at 6.30, when we were in our rooms for quiet time at 10.15, and then when we were lights out at 10.30. And so that, you know, puts a lot of pressure on you to do everything perfect. And if you don't do it perfectly, then you're kind of expecting hellfire in a sense, just because, you know, the, the, the exact obedience mentality was really strong. Looking back on it, do you... Do you see that 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 pressure was real or was it more that you put it on yourself? Definitely more I put it on myself. Okay. Because, I mean, other missionaries didn't experience that pressure. You know, I I had a companion in the MTC that would, you know, he just liked to have fun. Uh, And he had a lot of fun and, you know, he was up past 1030 quite a few times. And, you know, he seemed to not, you know, it didn't affect him very much. But for me... Maybe just because the family setting in which I grew up, maybe just my personality, it really took a toll on me. And I think that's kind of where the anxiety of it all really became an issue. Did your companions notice? Yeah. Are they aware? Yeah. Because you had two companions. That's mm-hmm. a unique situation Yeah, in and of itself. <laughs> Very unique. Uh, I mean, they, they knew. I, I, I made sure to make them aware of it from the beginning just because I said, you know, I'd, be, I'd, I'd love your support. Just so you know, like this is, if I'm struggling one day, this is why. How were they with you? We had our struggles. Uh, I mean, they were both very different than, from me. We, you know, had to hash it out a few times and we had to talk about things, you know, in a pretty blunt and bold way. So you were there for 63 days. Huh. Was it was it building the entire time? Was it mounting? Yeah, it was. It, it, had, it had gotten so severe uh, by week five, that the therapist, she took my kind of progress report to the medical committee at the MTC, which basically is if, if you're, you know, you're a missionary who's struggling with, you know, mental illness or some condition, if it gets to a certain extent, they'll take it before the committee, which consists of, you know, a couple of district presidents, the head doctor, the therapist who's mm. been, you know, recording your progress, and they'll kind of sit down and say, you know, is this missionary fit to serve? Should we send them stateside if they're going foreign? Should we send them home or are they fit to serve? And did you know all this was going on? Like, did they tell you we're going to do this or no? Uh, to be honest, I can't really remember. Mm-hmm. I think that the therapist and I had a pretty close relationship. And I think she did probably mention like, yeah, we're just going to make sure everything's okay. You know, we'll take your yeah progress and see what happens. But, you know, the prognosis came back. He's fit to serve. Elder Young is fit to serve. And uh, so I said, okay, well, if I'm fit to serve, that means I'm meant to serve. And uh, so we we continued to go, you know, week six, week seven, week eight. And by that time, I had been put on medication for the first time in my life. Mm. Uh, The doctor prescribed me some antidepressants. They were making some pretty drastic changes to my emotional skeleton, I guess you could say. Uh, I would get really bad tremors. 
I get really kind of jittery. Uh, I had even a harder time sleeping. And so they switched medications up on me once a week for the last three weeks, which if you've taken medication, you don't really do that. You like to, you know, have it sit for a few weeks. Yeah. But I think they were just so like, you know, this guy's going halfway across the world. We need to see if any of this is going to work. Yeah, they only have a condensed amount of time to figure something out. So you're going through this scramble the last few weeks at the MTC. How did that all end? Well, it uh, it ended with my family picking me up on the curb, uh, yeah. and did they did they come back to you and say, Elder Young, we're you're not going to go out? Yeah, I mean, it was probably week eight. Uh, the therapist sat me down and she said, Elder Young, I finally get it. She said, "You're not homesick." She said, "You're on the Titanic and you're going down fast." And it was the first moment in the MTC where I finally felt someone gets me. I wanted to be there so badly. I wanted to serve. I wanted to fulfill this full-time mission the Lord had assigned personally to me. And I couldn't. I literally could not do it. And I think that it was very difficult for my family because, you know, we had more communication than normal just because I was updating them on my progress and on the medication was going. And I was talking with, you know, my mom, my dad, and, I had the expectation of, you know, you don't come home early. Yeah. You, you don't. Which is a common thing. I mean, yeah. that's that's very common. In the book, you talk about uh, making the phone call, calling mm. home, calling and telling your dad. How mm. was that? Difficult. Yeah. Uh, I mean, my dad's always been my hero, and I've always wanted to make him proud. And I mentioned in the book that, there was no other time in my life that I felt that I let someone down as much. The district president offered to tell my parents for me, and I said, no, I, I need to tell them. Because they'd, had, they'd you know, decided to, to send me home to get better. So I pick up the phone, call my dad. He says, hey, how's it going? I said, I'm, I'm doing well. He said, you ready to get out tomorrow? Because our, our zone was leaving the next day. And I said, well, actually, they're, they're sending me home to get better. And it was dead silence. Yeah. Um, and he said, well, okay then. And I just kind of put the phone down and just kind of dropped my head and I'd failed. I, I literally oh, thought true. that I'd failed. And bless my dad's heart, we, we went through some struggles together for the ensuing year, year and a half. Um, great relationship to this day, but you never want to let someone down that you love and admire. And unfortunately, I feel like I did that. Drew, I, and fortunately we're going to get to some resolution on all this because right (laughs) now we're at a tough point, but I, I just need to insert here that if we could imagine you calling to say, you know what, mom and dad, I have cancer. I got to come home. There's no stigma to that. No one says, well, how dare you? Mm. You didn't try hard enough not to get cancer. You failed Mm. or I broke my leg. True. And I got to come home. Well, you should just try harder to walk. I pray and hope, and I hope that through stories like yours in your book, that we can get rid of this, Mm -hmm. this stigma, that this is a medical issue. Yeah. And you had a diagnosis, and it's something that you had no control over, 
and they were making the right decision. Yeah. But I understand to the extent that I can just how hard are you, you know, and, and it doesn't help. I can only imagine, you know, hey, you've already are struggling with anxiety. Now go home early and face mm. everyone. You talk yeah. about that quite a bit in the book. Talk about uh, a little bit about that first Sunday, because that's one of my favorite parts of your book. Mm. The first Sunday back was an experience I'll never forget because it taught me a, a critical lesson um, in the church culture. So I'd, I'd got back on the previous Sunday evening. So I had that whole week to kind of lie low, to not really see a lot of people because I didn't want to see anybody. No one really knew I was home except my family and you know the bishop and the stake president. But I knew that Sunday was coming. I had even considered taking crutches to church because mm. I was so fearful of the backlash that I would receive. Not that the members would be like, how dare he or anything like that, but it would, it would be, I didn't want to be the center of attention. I didn't want people to come up and say, you know, what happened? When are you going back out? Yeah. Just, you know, those questions that are really quite intrusive. Um, which people think, you know, they're just, they're doing the right things, but they're actually, you know, they can be quite intrusive no offense, for some people. but nobody's business. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, sorry, just nobody's business. Yeah, nobody's business. And I completely understand where they were coming from, but at the time I was, I was really scared and I, I walked into church, walked through the front doors and my mom's the organist. And so we sit on the front row and <laughs> we walked in and it was like spotlight just shined on me. I was wearing my oversized suit that I was supposed to grow into over the next couple of years. I didn't have a neck brace on or a cast on my leg. Uh, I didn't have any stitches to show. I was just sitting there in the front row with my dad, hoping and praying that somehow I'd be able to make it through those three hours. It's a heartbreaking account that you tell. How did most people in your circle, though, respond to you? Well, uh, some were good and some were bad. What are some of the things you just don't say to uh, someone who's returned from a mission? Early? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, especially with all the missionaries that have come home, you know, thousands and thousands of them recently. Right. I'll share two, if, if that's all right. Please. So one was more extreme. A neighbor across the street tweeted that I came home and had... Wait a minute, what? Why are they tweeting that you came home? <laughs> well, they were they were jokingly making fun of the fact that I had come home early when one of their friends who was only a recent convert was out on their mission still. And so that was really difficult for me. And he took, this individual took the post down after some of my friends who had seen it. I hadn't seen it personally, I'd heard about it later, but... Some of my friends got after this individual, yeah. and he and they took it down. But um, so that was more of the extreme. Yeah, you that's don't, not great. You don't publicize it no. um, in any in any way, shape, or form unless you're doing it with that person's permission. Yeah. But I'd say you know something else that is obviously less severe. That's just kind of no one knows not to do it, so they do do it. Is you know all of the the questions that come across really well intentioned are intentional, but aren't the right things to say. For example, you know, 
Why did you come home? Doesn't matter. Yeah. Whether it's based on sin or illness or outside circumstances, doesn't matter. You're asking that question to feed your own, your own ego. Right. Because you want to know. Oh, you want to be in the know. That's why this person came home. You don't want to ask that. Um, you do want to ask, how's it going? How are you? How are you doing? Oh, yeah. Because then that provides the opportunity for that person to let you in a little bit. If you just kind of ask, you know, when, where, why questions, that'll shut off any potential communication yeah. that could actually help. So, yeah. I mean, we don't, we don't need to know why. I think, um, I mean, it, it's, it's gossip is the cancer of any culture, mm. regardless of what religion it is, regardless of what workplace or school. Gossip is, you know, everyone wants to be in the know. It's yeah. just kind of human nature. You want to know what's going on. And so I, I don't blame anybody for, you know, the questions they ask because they didn't know any better. And that's one of the purposes for me writing this book was for anybody out there who struggles with something that's less understood, addiction, mental illness, same-sex attraction, discouragement, for anyone yeah. that kind of struggles with the taboo issues of the LDS culture, I want them to know that my book is a safe place for them. That's um, awesome. It's a place where they can feel like, this guy understands a little bit of what I've gone through and he, he's trying to change things for the better. I didn't write the book to show any bitterness or any animosity. I didn't write it and to you blame anybody. You make that anybody. very clear. Like yeah. you, you mentioned that many times. And before we jump into the book, two, two more quick questions. Yeah. The first one is how long was it before you understood, I'm not going back out. I have served my mission. Uh, that's an interesting question because I knew it after a month and a half, but no one else knew it for about two years. And the reason why I say I knew it is because one night I was sitting up in my room, just contemplating my future because I thought I had no future. I mean, <sighs> when you feel like you've failed in any capacity, in any regard in your life, yeah, there's always going to be that question of, well, what now? You know, whether it's you failed a test or you lost your job, or you've just gone through a tough relationship, the question is always, well, what now? And so that question was forefront in my mind just because not only did I have pressure from my family, God bless them, but I also had pressure from the community. And so one night I was just up in my room thinking about things and really trying to just ask Heavenly Father, what is my mission? You know, what is my mission in life? Not just full-time mission, like what is my mission? What am I supposed to do? And I was reading my, my patriarchal blessing, and as clear as day, the words came to my mind, you fulfilled your mission. And I wrote it down. I wrote down the time. I wrote down the date so I could have that there for my life. Awesome. And I didn't tell anybody because why would I tell anybody? I, I, I didn't feel like they would understand. They would probably think, oh, he's copping out or, oh, he's, you know, he got through the MTC, but he's not, he's not cut out for this. Mm. Um, I actually had someone very close to me say, if you don't go back out, you're going to leave the church one day. Thinking that a mission was a saving ordinance or, you know, kind of a, a rite of passage to the celestial kingdom. Mm. And I think it's gotten better. But to anyone out there who's listening to this, who's had any type of circumstance where they feel like they've failed or fallen short or gone against the status quo of the culture of the church, let me tell you, your mission is still 100% yours. 
Yeah. And you don't need to worry about anyone judging you or saying, you know, you have to do this to have this type of life. They don't know you. God does. Uh, and so I went to the one source for truth, and that was God, and he gave me the truth. So if you have a question, if you're really searching for that mission, for that understanding of where you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to be doing, regardless of what you've gone through, go to the one source who not only loves you the most, but knows you the most and will give you the right answer in the right time. What inspired you to take all these experiences you had and put them into a book? Well, I think it all started when about a year and a half after I'd gotten home, the bishopric finally asked me to give my homecoming talk. And I think either because I had requested it to kind of talk about my story, or they just thought, all right, maybe he's, uh, he's, he's not going back out, so let's give him uh, an opportunity to speak. And I had written down kind of my, my journey. I had written down, you know, what happened with receiving my mission call and, you know, being told having to wait six months, and I ended up getting it. I talked about, you know, the whole experience with telling God, you know, I don't understand, but I trust you. And I just kind of wrote that for my talk. And after I wrote the talk, I said, I need to write. This needs to become something more. And so that's when I kind of went to work. And it was traumatic and therapeutic at the same time to relive those, those experiences. But, you know, five years later and 30,000 words and rewriting and re-editing and submitting it and having it rejected and so on and so forth, I finally got it to a place where not only was I proud of it, but, you know, a publisher was willing to, you know, take the risk on me, so to speak. So. Yeah. And uh, the the book is being published by Cedar Fort, right. which is a big publisher. That's awesome. The book is called The Meaning of Your Mission, Lessons and Principles to Know You Are Enough. And uh, like I said, I've gotten to uh, read through the book. It's phenomenal. You have a gift for writing. Thank you. Uh, who's this book for? I know it sounds broad, and people listening to this will say, yeah, right. But I really wrote it for anybody. Yeah. And to narrow that down, anybody really within the, the Latter-day Saint culture. I don't think a Catholic reading this book would find, you know, a whole lot of, you know, solace in it. But it's universally applicable to a large number of people. Uh, like I agree. You, I totally agree with you. Because yeah. there's a lot about church culture in it. There are a lot yeah. of things we can glean, not only in, in our own experiences, but in understanding people's experiences better. Right. We all know people with mental health struggles. We all know people who have come home from missions early, decided not to go, yeah. served and came back unhappy mm -hmm. or bitter. Yeah. There's such an array... I learned a lot from your book. I really would say it is it is for anyone. It's also a doctrinal book. It was surprising. I expected more of a, an autobiographical book. Yeah, I, I tried to make it, like you mentioned, I tried to make it, it's really, it's, it's my experiences with coming home early from serving a full-time mission that I apply universally using lessons and principles from you know, church leaders, but also, you know, best-selling authors and business philosophers and motivational speakers to help anyone who's trying to discover and live their mission in life. These are some tried and true tips and techniques that you can use to do a little bit better today than you did yesterday. 
It's awesome. It's really great. And it's coming out July 14th. Anything else you want people to know about the book? I really hope for anyone that decides to pick up a copy that you feel that with my vulnerability, that I'm really just trying to give you a glimpse into what we can do better and how we can understand and love each other more. Like you mentioned, it's, you know, great book for perspective missionaries, for missionaries that have come home. It's a great book for for parents who have a child who has mental illness uh, or who's struggling with something that they don't quite understand. And I very, very clearly walk them through, Mm -hmm. this is what your son or daughter is experiencing and this is what you can do to help. This is what you can do to hurt. Um, And so for anybody who's looking for kind of a breath of fresh air for someone who's gone through something difficult, but has tried to express in both vulnerability and moments of, you know, encouragement that no matter what you've gone through in your life, you have a mission, you can fulfill it. And I'm here to walk you, walk walk with you every step of the way. You're incredibly vulnerable in it. Very humble and very open, like so candid. It's incredible. Uh, I want to put kind of a little bit of a a bookend on your story, (laughs) which is over the last, uh, over the last year and a half, two years, your life has changed a ton. Yeah. Tell us about, uh, and in fact, why we why we had to choose the time to record that we did was for good reason. Tell us what's happening now in your life. Well, the last two years, I mean, I've been able to to get married, um, have a beautiful wife, and five months ago, we welcomed our first daughter into the world, and she's the light of our life so far. The first two months were difficult and challenging, you know, getting used to everything, but she's, she's smiling and she, she makes our lives better and, and teaches us a lot of lessons along the way. So I'll just wait till she's a teenager. <laughs> I don't know about challenges. <laughs> we're, uh, we're, we're, we're getting used to it. We're getting no, I'm ready. kidding. I'm kidding. What a blessing. What a beautiful blessing it is. If people want to follow you and if people want to find out for, uh, find out about the book, What's the best way for them to follow you as well as to find the book? Yeah, so I, I really try and, and post uplifting and encouraging and positive uh, content on my social media. Uh, if anyone's interested in, in kind of learning more about me, you can follow me. It's Mr. Drew, B as in boy, Young. And if anyone would like to pick up a copy of the book, you can actually go to drewbyoung.com. And if you put the promo code MISSION in, you'll get 20% off. Awesome. And so I wanted I wanted anyone who is kind of looking for something to read during the summer. And I talked to the publisher and we were able to get a little bit of a discount. So I'd love for people to, to follow me and kind of walk with me on this journey and I'll walk with you as well. DrewBYoung.com. Drew, I have loved this. I'm so glad you reached out. This has been a phenomenal conversation. My think, honor. No, it's my honor. I think <laughs> you're inspiring so many people. And, and I mean it when I say, and I wouldn't say it if I didn't mean it. I love the book. Thank you. I really love it. I think you have a gift for writing and it's eye-opening and it caused me to think about a lot of things I hadn't thought about before. Mm. It's just beautiful. We are going to wrap up with the question that we ask all of our guests. And that is, what does being a member of the church mean to you? It means that I get to develop my relationship with Christ in a more effective way. Mm. I've learned that it's all about Him. And our missions in life, our purpose, we can only really discover it through Him and help us to do it. Awesome. He is a husband, he is a new father, and he is a new author. The book is called The Meaning of Your Mission, 
Lessons and Principles to Know You Are Enough. Drew Young, thank you so much for sharing your Latter-day Life with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. And my special thanks to Drew Young for coming on the show and sharing his story. I, I think it's really important, and his book is just incredible. I'm so grateful I got to read it. I learned a lot, and I think it's not just for people who um, maybe are struggling with something themselves, not just for prospective missionaries or people who have a missionary out. It's for all of us. It's really a great guide to help people who are struggling with difficult things, as well as how to figure out when we are struggling with uh, with our own difficulties. And again, thank you, Drew. Uh, this week in my Latter-day life, I had something I needed to do, and I, I kind of wrestled back and forth. Is, is this something I'm really going to do? Is it not? And finally, I was like, you know what? It's important. I just need to do it. And you know how it goes with things like that. You can find every reason not to do something that you feel like putting off, even if you know it's something you need to do. But but finally, I, I decided to buck up and just get it done. And in so doing, I was able to meet a man. And as we got to talking, uh, he shared with me something so incredible. And he was talking about his life. And he was saying how happy he is and how wonderful his life is and how he's in a bishopric, and just everything's good in the world. And then he shared with me that six years ago, this was not the case. Six years ago, he was in prison, and it wasn't the first time he had been in prison. He had been in prison multiple times. And he shared that uh, all these times in prison, he had given up hope, that he felt like God had forgotten him. But somehow, this last time, and, and he's a little bit older, you know, older middle-aged guy, and uh, he, he just shared with me that this last time something clicked, that he was able to figure out the atonement and the Savior and change his life for good. And he said, six years ago, if you would have told me while I was sitting in prison that I would be uh, in a bishopric and, and living the good life, he said, you know, I would have never believed you, but this is what the Savior does. And I think after this week, having met with Drew and hearing his story, and I think when he was on his mission uh, or you know in the MTC, I think if you would have told him, hey, someday you're going to write a book about this and you're going to change people's lives, he would have said, there's no way that I will ever get to that point, and especially once he got home uh, right after the MTC. And again, this is what this man shared. And after I got done with, uh, with talking to this particular brother, I got very emotional uh, to the point where I was in tears. And it really hit me that when I hear Drew's story and when Drew shares about how his heart changed and, and he was able to gain strength and he was able to come back and find his mission after a time that he thought all was lost, and then hearing this man talk about being in prison and coming back and after he thought all was lost. And I realized part of why I was so emotional is that I, kn- I heard that from each of them and I thought, yeah, I know. Of course it did. That's what God does. But it hit me that I don't always believe that for myself. It's very easy for me to believe that God is a God of miracles 
for everybody else. I know it. I see it. I see it all the time. And deep down, I see it in my own life. But I have a harder time because I think to myself, yes, but I'm not worthy of that. Or, but, you know, this is too deep and he'll never be able to change me in this way. Or I've failed at this change so many times, it's impossible for me to come back and to actually change no matter what. And I sat and was so emotional thinking about how easy it is for me to believe in change in others and how hard it is for me for myself. And I don't think I'm alone in this. I think many of us do this, where faith in his ability to work with others, because we see others as so amazing, and we think they're so incredible. And of course, they're going to change, because they're, they're incredible. How could God not love them? But for ourselves, yeah, it's not so easy. And I wrestled with that quite a bit, and have spent some time thinking about it, how I need to believe that he is the same God to me that he is to this man who was in prison, that he is to Drew, that he is to you, that he is to all of us, that if I'll really put faith in him, he can actually change me and that I can change. I have to do the work. I have to be humble. I have to believe in him, but that he will change me as much as he has put miraculous changes for everybody else. It's hard to do. Brothers and sisters and friends, for those of you who are struggling right now with these same things, who are thinking, hey, I just, something I hope to accomplish or someone I hope to be, I have just failed for the hundredth time. The hundred and first time might be that time. You can change and so can I. I believe it. We have to give God our faith. We have to give it one more try every time. And every time we fall down, we have to get up. Even if we think I'm going to take one more step and fall again, It might be that last time before we fall, and we may never fall again, and we have to keep on going. I know that God loves me. I know that I have seen miracles in so many people's lives, and he takes the weak things, and he makes them strong. This week with Drew, he took a broken young man and has made him just an absolute leader among men and an author that will change lives. And he took this man who was broken and an addict and in prison and has made him now a member of a bishopric and such a happy man in the gospel. He will change you. He will change me if we just put our faith in him. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for checking in with us again this week. We really appreciate it. If you know anybody who might enjoy the show, if you could share it with them, if you could share the show on social media. Again, we had our biggest month of listenership in May by a lot. The show is growing so fast, and that's because of wonderful listeners like you. Thank you so much. Uh, We invite you to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Just search for Latter-day Lives. Uh, If you want to reach out to me directly, I can be reached at sean at latterdaylives.com. That's S-H-A-W-N at latterdaylives.com. I think that's about all we've got for you this week. So until we meet again, there is a great big beautiful world out there. So go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 